Okay, we're starting again episode three of Main Street Lessons from Finance Freaks. I'm Matt and Luke are here to kind of give you some information about markets, but also just general financial planning tips. And we're going to try to take away all the noise and that you see on regular CNBC, Bloomberg, all the rest of it. Uh, so hopefully you'll get some from this. If not, uh, it's Luke's fault, not my fault. And we'll take it from there. But we just want to obviously remind you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied on for any investment decisions. Any opinions expressed are solely our own opinions and are not investment advice. Please consult a financial professional or tax expert prior to making financial decisions. All right, let's take it from there, Luke. Now that we've got the uh, obligatory stuff out of the way. Well, we've got a number of interesting topics in our doc today. Where do we want to start? You want to start with one of yours Uh, or one of mine? Why don't you go ahead? Okay. So the first topic I brought to the table is actually something you brought up two weeks ago, which (laughs) is the trade-off in bond risk and return. So I've been looking at the bond market and the yield curve, and what we've seen is this inverted yield curve, which means that short-term interest rates have been higher than long-term interest rates. So on even a money market fund or very short-term treasury bills, you're getting 5.5% now. And if you're to take you know more duration risk going out on the yield curve, buying a 10-year bond, you're only getting, well, now it hit 5%, but it was 4.5%. So you're getting less for taking more duration risk. And I said to myself, why would I want to be taking duration risk at this time? And I think that you and I both agreed that we were generally thinking about keeping our bond duration shorter. But what I've shared with you today is a chart of the trade-off between risk and return. So the way that bonds work is that if interest rates go up, an existing bond loses value. So imagine you have a bond and it's paying 5%. You buy it for $1,000. So you get $50 a year income from the bond. Now, if the going interest rate in the economy goes up to 6%, then there's another bond out there which is paying $60 a year. So the bond that you bought for $1,000 and is only paying $50 a year is going to be worth less. And the reverse is true as well. If interest rates in the economy go down then your existing bond is worth more. So if we look at the trade-off here, take a look at something like the 10-year U.S. Treasury. If there's no change in interest rates between now and 12 months from now, it's going to return about 4.5%. That's the yield. Right. If interest rates go up by 1%, then you're going to lose on this. You're going to lose value. But if the interest rates go up by 1%, you'll lose about 25 to 3% yep. estimated. Okay, so you get the interest payment of four and a half percent, but you lose some value on the bond. But if interest rates go down by one percent, then you're going to increase the value of this investment by 12 percent. And so that risk return trade off starts to become pretty attractive. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the way that I would look at it is the more interest rates go up, the more asymmetry there is between rates going up further and rates going down. So I think what you're saying is at a certain point, the, you know, it's weighted a little more towards if rates, you know, the the gain if rates go down is so great versus the loss if rates go up that it starts to look like a, a good spot to be. And I think this kind of goes back to a question we, we asked the last time, which is just sort of when do you go out in duration? When do you feel comfortable doing that? And I would say, given even the last couple of weeks, we've seen some moves up to 5%, as we've said, and then things kind of fall back down below 5%. So maybe 5% is a decent level where you say, okay, at this point, 
especially as the yields curve seems like it's starting to flatten a little bit. I think this morning both were a little bit over five percent, like the two year and the the ten year and third you know thirty year were about five percent. So at that point, if it's flattened, maybe you say at that point. I'm ready to go a little bit longer. And whether it's 10 or 20 or 30, I'm not sure. You know, you can make that decision. I think maybe 10 or 20 makes more sense than 30. But you're right that there is a certain asymmetry as rates move up. I think that the the problem we've seen over the last couple of years is just that when you're going from a zero, the asymmetry is the other way around. Yeah, we've gotten killed in bonds. Mm -hmm. The other thing to keep in mind here is what is the purpose of bonds in your portfolio, which is which is something we discussed last yeah. time. If it's truly stability as opposed to investment growth, then keeping shorter duration, even money markets paying five and a half percent is a perfectly reasonable outcome. But if you're trying to potentially juice your returns a little bit, that's where you can take a little bit of, of duration risk. Maybe. It's how does it work into your financial plan? Right. Are you trying to build a bucket strategy where you say, I'm going to make sure that I have enough money coming mature over the next year to cover the following year's expenses? Because I know what I'm spending and I don't have to worry about selling anything regardless of where the market is at that point. So I'm just going to create a bond ladder that's going to cover my expenses over the near term. And then I can not worry about the rest of the money being invested in the stocks. So I can kind of bifurcate my my portfolio into here's what I, I have my cash in my bank account for you know this year. I have a, a one year bond ladder, you know, one year's worth of bonds that will cover next year's expenses. And maybe you do that for three, four, five years, knowing that then wherever the market is, I'm not gonna have to tell, sell stocks. So even more than stability, I think about it as when am I gonna need this money? I love a bucketing strategy as a behavioral hack. Even if you still end up with the same overall asset allocation, to think about bonds as financing the next one year, the next two to four years, the next five to seven years, and having a specific allocation towards that, it is a nice behavioral hack because it allows you to stay in your seat, right? Mm -hmm. It allows you to think about the rest of your portfolio as, okay, I'm not going to be dipping into that for seven years or 10 years, and that can make the volatility a lot more tolerable. Yep. Good. I think, well, we should uh, maybe move on from there. And uh, this is a little bit of a technical uh, uh, wonky type topic that I chose for my first one here. But it is, what is the impact of T plus one settlement? And uh, I was trying to explain this to somebody and what settlement is. And I think the easiest way to think about it is to go back in the day. A lot of times I find in finance, let's think about how this operated 50, 60, 70 years ago. You know, so if we took you had a stock paper stock certificate, right? And it had that paper stock certificate had to go from one brokerage firm where it was owned for one client to another brokerage firm where it was owned by another client. So as trades are happening on paper tickets, you know, somebody's writing down, I want to buy a hundred shares of Microsoft. Somebody across town is writing down, I want to sell a hundred shares of Microsoft. Somebody behind the scenes has to sit back and match those things together so that cash goes one direction to the person selling. And the stock certificate goes the other direction. And that is the process of settlement, of matching all the buys and sells so that everything nets out to zero and there's no missing 100 shares of Microsoft somewhere along the line. Now, consistently with technology, the, the, the amount of time it's taken to actually do this settlement process has gone down. And there was a recent announcement that in the U.S. that's actually going to go to one day, meaning if I sell my 100 shares of Microsoft, 
that money is available for me to withdraw from my account tomorrow. What does that mean for anybody uh, in your mind? Well, Luke's looking dumbfounded. <laughs> I'm happy to jump in on this one. I've always, given how quickly money moves now with all of the technology that we have available, you can send money to someone over Venmo in seconds. You can send money even via an electronic funds transfer instantaneously. So I've been confounded about why the settlement has been two days for so long. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is long overdue. And T plus one, meaning one day settlement, still seems too long to me. Why isn't it instantaneous? Could you explain that? (laughs) I think a lot of it has to do with legacy systems, right? It has to do with the fact that you can't change the way that banks or the federal, you know, central banks or commercial banks do business overnight. And these, a lot of these systems have been built on old programming languages that people don't even use anymore. But to create a new system is quite difficult. But, you know, so it's the same reason why we were having, trying to get an incoming wire from the UK and nobody knew how to do it. I mean, I, I, it's amazing to me. And it took multiple tries just to send money from the UK to a US uh, brokerage account. I think that that's changing as it gets easier to to change systems. But it's why does your check take days to clear? Same reason that the the system between banks talking to each other is antiquated, and there's there's nobody who's been able to come in and disrupt that. Which is why you've seen some fintech companies like a PayPal or or Square or something try to do it, you know, with technology, but behind the scenes, they're really kind of taking that risk that the money doesn't show up. Mm. Right. I mean, it happens instantaneously on you from the customer perspective, but behind the scenes, really that company's on the risk that the money doesn't show up at the end of the day. And I think what's interesting about this two plus one settlement move that they've made recently is they, it was cited as the reason for doing it wasn't to make people's lives easier. Like now I have the money sooner. It was because what was happening was that Anytime uh, when you're trading on on on, a, on margin, well, the margin is based on what's actually available, and so the margin requirement was not matching the speed of the trade. They want people who were trading on margin, and then maybe the money didn't show up on time, and you you get out of kilter with with what you're able to borrow to buy stocks or bonds versus what you're actually uh, the value of your account after all of the trades have taken place. But I do think that it just to me it highlights to your point. It takes a lot for systems to change. And certainly my hope, like yours, is that they could get to a, some type of same-day settlement. Um, in uh, an art, a different article that I read, they were saying that Canada and Mexico are, are trying to move to same-day settlement. But I think it would help everybody's lives, lives to know that computer systems are talking faster. I mean, when trades are happening in nanoseconds, the fact that the money can't be available to you for two days makes no sense to me. So I'm glad they're moving in this direction. I think it's going to take a lot more. The the piping, the the plumbing of the financial system is, you know, is the same as it's been. And and that needs to be adjusted. And hopefully this is a good step in that direction. So you see it as a, a net positive. Net right? positive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Great. Let's move on to the next topic. In mid-October 2022, Things were terrible. Mm -hmm. Everyone was bearish, practically everyone. And that actually represented the bottom of the market. Uh, Since mid-October, the S&P 500 is up, well, it depends on what day you're listening to this, but somewhere between 10 and 20%, probably about 15%. And so we are in a new bull market. The 
market has gone up for 12 months, even though it doesn't always feel like it, especially when there's so much volatility in the last few months. I pulled a chart which shows the second year of a bull market, what returns have been. So you look at the bear market low and you look at the first year return after that bear market low. And and typically that's pretty high. You know, the first year of a bull market is pretty strong. And in fact, this one has been weaker than any of the past. What do we have about 15 bear market lows here? So at, a, at plus 15 percent, that's actually the worst first year return in the bull market. But then if you look at the second year of mm-hmm. a bull market, how well the market has done, the average return over that second year is 13 percent, which is better than a typical year. And the median is is 14 percent. And in 100 percent of the cases, the second year was positive. So you don't typically have or we haven't historically had one year of a bull market off a low and then a reversal, even though it feels like it right now, that there might be some sort of reversal. Historically, we don't see new lows when we enter a new bull market. So what what are we to make of this? Well, it sounds like what you're saying is, if I was to ask the question, when are we out of the woods from what we saw last year? I think what you're making the argument here is that after a year of positive return, you know, significant positive returns above 20%, right? Uh, you should be out of the woods. But yet there's still so much fear right now about the market going back down and that we haven't gotten that recession that, you know, everyone was expecting. So I think what you're saying here is it's, Maybe there's no reason to get out right now. <laughs> Despite all of the, the negativity, keep to your asset allocation because it's it's very possible, given history at least, that we're out of the woods right now and we can feel comfortable that we're on a new new trend. Yeah, I think back to the financial crisis, 09, 08, 09, when the market was down so much, 50% peak to trough, and I was in business school in 2011 and 2012 and studying asset allocation and investment management, we had a lot of people come in from various investment management firms and almost across the board, they were very wary of the markets. And that was in 2011 and 2012, that was the feeling is like, we're probably headed back for more pain. And it never happened, right? We basically took off from there 2011, 2012, I mean, 2009 was the low, but then we had a really good run over the next decade. And it really took several years for people to accept that reality and say, okay, we are out of the woods. And so I think that not that this current environment is a perfect parallel to 2009, but there is something to be said for this gut feeling of fear after the market pulls back where it's really hard to accept that the market can go back up. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, I I once heard a a gentleman say to me that the best investment decisions are made when you feel like after you hit buy, you're going to throw up. (laughs) And I think that's a little bit of what you're saying is like, you know, if you feel bad, you know, take a pause and think about, am I making a decision because of uh, like how I feel or because of what I see factually? And certainly all of the 
I should say all. I mean, there's certainly some some negative, you know, actual data out there. But a lot of the 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 data has turned more positive uh, from where it was, more optimistic. And so, at least from a a data standpoint, one could say maybe you're right. Maybe we're out of the woods. You know, you still see analysts saying, okay, we're going to get you know maybe a shallow recession. But maybe that move last October was enough to take into consideration the possibility of that. And um, but certainly, I think there's no reason to go. You know, I think what you're saying is at this point, I wouldn't go significantly underweight what your normal stock uh, position would be. Great. Let's move on. Uh, this is something that um, my colleagues and I talk a lot about, which is the solo 401k with profit sharing. I think it's one of the most underutilized tools for small business saving, meaning solo businesses, or a, maybe it's a, a one-person business, or maybe it's a husband and wife team, or a couple, te- you know, two, two, uh, the the couple together own the business. Those are both options for this. But the you know the goal that we always talk about, of course, is how can you put as much towards your retirement goal into a retirement account where you might either get a tax benefit up front uh, in a regular pre-tax account or get a tax benefit at the end when you take the money out. But either way, we want that money growing uh, at, you know, tax deferred for as long as possible. And we want as much as possible growing tax deferred. Certainly, you know, cover your, your initial, your, your basic living expenses first. But the, the question from there, especially if your your small business, your solo business is doing well, is how can I maximize the money I put into retirement? And the traditional answer has, if you know, I find most accountants will say this is put money into a SEP IRA. OK, and that's great. And that worked really well. And it's, it allows you to put 25 uh, percent of your uh, your income after uh, your, you know, basically your profits, your net income after your expenses for your business in. But this solo 401k allows you to do more. And the way I always explain it is you get to wear two hats. With a SEP IRA, at the end of the year, you look at how well you did and you say, you put on the employer hat and you say, I own my business and I'm going to put 25% of what I made, but into a SEP IRA. With the solo 401k, you get to wear the employee hat and the employer hat. So you get to work from an employee standpoint, just as if you were working for a big company, you can put aside the maximum 401k uh, contribution uh, from an employee deferral perspective, which for 2023 is 22,500 plus another uh, 7,500 if you're 50 or older. So we're talking about $30,000 that can be put into that account from the employee side. And at the end of the year, you can still put on the employer hat and say, hey, I had a great year. Now I'm going to give to my employees and look at doing you know another 25%. So I just see it as probably the most powerful tool for getting as much money into uh, a retirement account when you run your own business. Uh, Luke, do you use these at all in your uh, your practice? I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, this is an incredibly powerful tool if you are a solo practitioner. Right. You cannot have employees and do this. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So that's the trouble that I've found with many small businesses is that they'll have even just two or three employees. And so that makes it right. You know, you have to go to some other tool. But yeah, for a for a solo practitioner who's earning a lot of uh, who's making a lot, who has a successful business. This yeah, is an incredibly we, powerful tool. We see it mostly with I'll say the common uh, types of careers where I think we see this is real estate agents who get a 1099 from their their agency. So they're technically running their own business. 
uh, and we see it with, you know, uh, psychologists, therapists, um, those types of businesses where, you know, they're naturally going to be one person type of businesses. As I said, it can be, you know, two owners is, is which often happens with like a husband and wife team, but you're right. You can't have any employees, um, for this to work, but I, you know, I certainly think there's a trend of more people working for themselves, whether it's consulting, you know, independent contracting, gig work, anything like that. Uh, this is an option for that. So I think that the the ability, you know, certainly the opportunities for this, uh, I think, are expanding as uh, people are more comfortable working for themselves. Yeah. And the total contributions allowable in 2023 are $66,000 not including the catch-up contribution for people over 50. It's an incredibly powerful tool, like you said. Great. All right, back to uh, Luke for his uh, his third one here. Okay, I also chose a financial planning topic. This came about because I was talking with some friends about insurance. These things come up. I used to be, when I was younger, kind of anti-insurance. like All types of insurance? Yeah, to me, it was a losing bet, generally speaking. You're putting money into something that is a low probability event. So I just kind of tried to buy as little insurance as possible for a long time in my life. But as a financial planner, I started to learn the importance of insurance. And so the article I, I sent to Matt was specifically about disability insurance. And the fact that the financial planning industry and investment advisor in general are probably underutilizing disability insurance. And the reason is that while we often talk with people about the importance of life insurance, life insurance is critically important to cover, you know, that unfortunate possible scenario where someone passes away and their family is is left to you know, survive for not financially on their own, life insurance is critically important for that. And I think that most people agree with that. But disability is actually a far more common occurrence with something like one in four people at some point experiencing disability. And so if you don't have some kind of disability insurance, should that be something you look into? And are we talking about it enough? I love this article because I think it's absolutely true. I think that we're not talking about this enough. And and maybe it's because even more than death, disability seems like something people don't want to think about. I don't think, you know, it's one thing to, to lay out a financial plan and say, if you live till 95, you know, here's how your financial situation looks. If you pass away at 70 or 60 or 50, here's how it looks. And I think people actually have gotten a little bit more comfortable in, in my view. Maybe I've gotten better talking about it, but thinking about that occurrence, some, somebody passes away. The disability thing just seems so hard to understand because you're you're still you wake up every day. You're still hoping to do it, but you just can't do the work that you enjoy, you know, the job that you've done. And that seems like such a hard thing to think about. But I do think that, like you said, there, you know, it happens. And the other thing I think that reason maybe people don't talk about uh, it enough is that for a lot of people uh, these days, right, uh, they're using their brain. So they're thinking my job is my head. It's all in my head. I don't need to work. And so if my body gets hurt, like I should still be able to do my job uh, reasonably well. Um, but unfortunately, as we know, I mean, it's not just, you know, physical jobs where people get injured enough that they can't work, you know, whether that's construction or uh, fire, you know, uh, firemen or something like that. 
So I do think it's something to be to to talk about. And um, uh, I've recently, you know, been doing a little research for myself about disability from a buy sell perspective. And um, I had no idea, for example, that you could obtain disability assurance where instead of just getting a stream of income to replace your your earnings that you would have, you can also buy disability where it's buy sell disability, where it will cover a lump sum just like a death benefit on life insurance. So I'm I'm exploring that right now for my own business in case something happens to me from a life insurance perspective, but also from a disability perspective would allow my employee to purchase uh, the business and have that money go towards uh, towards my wife and kids. So it's I think it is hugely important. I'm not sure why it's not talked about more. I think it has to do with, as I said, those two factors. One, people not being comfortable with the idea of being around but not being able to work. And two, just the idea that, well, I'm smart. I have my, I always have my head. If I don't have my head, I'm in a really bad situation. Uh, so I'll be able to work in something. I think it, I largely see it talked about mostly these days, like I said, with those physical type jobs where somebody says, you know, if I get injured on the job, uh, I'm going to need this. And, uh, and so those types of like, you know, fireman, police officer type of things is really where you more see it right now. Those are great points. Thanks, Matt. All right. So final topic for me before you do it, we do also have a financial planning topic today, um, which actually I actually think maybe we should just go there right now because it kind of relates. But my general uh, topic was the value of planning for the unexpected and out of our control. Um, So I think, you know, we almost sort of answered this, but uh, in, in that answer there about disability insurance. But how often I mean, to me, financial planning is all about it's not you know, we'd like to say that we can change people's you know habits but i think that change happens from seeing the impact in the future right until you know uh what things might look like when something unexpected happens or something you know or you save a little more maybe it's in your control but until you can see the impact of that i find it very hard for people to think about those future events like getting disability you know getting disabled or something like that so how do you think about how do you kind of tee up for people the value of financial planning uh, when it's things that we, you know, have no control over uh, inflation, uh, getting, you know, getting disabled, car accident, you know, dying, things like that. Why is financial planning still important when we really can't do anything about uh, those situations? Those types of things, I see them as the most impactful potentially to your financial life. So what people tend to focus on and I don't know if this is a fault of the industry, is investment returns. Those are the kinds of things where we're seeking out the best investment advisor, seeking out the best mutual funds, trying to eke out an extra 1% or 2% in our portfolio. But at the end of the day, the things that are going to really drive our finances are probably much larger items. And like you said, they may be unexpected things. And so... Talking about those potential things, such as, you know, what's going to happen if you need to go into a nursing home when you're 90 years old and it costs you $120,000 per year. Those are things that are really important for, for financial planners to talk about and for people to think about. And so going back to the last topic of disability insurance, people are, are, are massively underinsured for life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care, although long-term care is a difficult thing to insure for. But I think that planning for those unexpected things is really important. And you can do that in a lot of different ways, right? You can 
have a big cash reserve, for instance. That's you know something that can be really valuable for people and give them some peace of mind. Just hang on to whatever it is, $50,000 cash, just in case you do need whatever happens, right? A new refrigerator, a new washer dryer, a new car. Those things pop up from time to time. And when you can handle those bumps in the road without having to sweat it too much, you know, you don't have to go to your investment portfolio. Those are really powerful things for people to have a, a positive experience with their financial lives. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, just thinking about insurance, what's the point of insurance? Well, it's it's risk management. And I think what we're saying here is by building into your plan things that may be unexpected or out of our control, just because they're, we can't have any control over them doesn't mean we can't manage the risk for those possible events and find offload that risk to somebody else. You know, we just don't want somebody to, something to happen to somebody's financial life uh, that they haven't thought about, you know, that they haven't considered and maybe taking steps to, like we said, offload the risk to someone else if it makes sense in their situation. So I think always thinking about things, whether they're in our control or out of our control, uh, you know, whether they're, they're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ahead is a valuable way to think about how can I act now to make that future self, put that future self in a better position. That's great. All right. Well, I've got one more uh, topic here. I think it's, you know, I, I have a feeling we both agree uh, on this. It should be pretty, pretty much softball here, but I know there's a lot of in the news right now, certainly when we're recording about the Israel-Hamas uh, conflict going on in the Middle East. As geopolitical conflicts come up, how should we think about them uh, in terms of our investment strategy, in your view? I think going back to planning for the unexpected, having a portfolio which is structured to tolerate volatility is the important thing here. And so making adaptations to a portfolio in light of something that unfolds such as geopolitical events is typically not a great decision. You should have something that you're ready to roll with in advance of the geopolitical event. I mean, unexpected events are inevitable. And that's why we don't just have, for instance, 100% U.S. stocks all the time, right? That's why, that's the purpose of diversification. We've talked before about, you know, even diversifying with gold or cash or something else that might perform well during geopolitical crisis or financial crisis. And having those safety nets in, plant, in place in advance should mean that you don't need to make drastic changes to your investment plan in light of new unexpected wars breaking out. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. I think, you know, oftentimes what happens is the headlines come out and people want to react and I think the real question is, underlying all the headlines, is has anything really changed? You know, what are the longer term trends uh, that may be uh, underlying that headline? You know, one might say, OK, uh, you know, something like the headlines, you know, the news about China decoupling from China. How are we going to, you know, the risks there of, uh, of China, China becoming more antagonistic to the U.S. and vice versa? Those are the longer term th trends. But when I see an initial headline like, a, you know, war broke out here. I think generally you see a, a quick reaction and then most of the time, um, you know, it sort of quickly gets integrated in and it's sort of back to normal to where however the, you know, whatever people were thinking about before that event broke out. So I think the headlines are not worth thinking about. I do think sometimes the trends that may be represented by those, he those headlines are worth thinking about, but certainly like an initial 
uh, conflict like that, unless it changes my long-term perspective on something, uh, it's just one day, it's just one data point. And uh, most of the time I see these things quickly fade. And it's really hard to react faster than the algorithms. Yep. You know, I mean, if you have hedge funds running algorithms based on headlines, they're probably going to make trades instantaneously, which are going to swing markets one way or another. And it's impossible to work any faster than them. You're just going to get whipsawed if you try and get get in front of one of these things. Absolutely true. So key is make your decisions long term, make your decisions with with thought in mind over over time. Not, you know, it can't be quicker than a computer, um, but have a plan in place and uh, and make those decisions with that in mind. So I think that's all we have for today, Luke. Is there anything else, uh, you know, just bugging you that you want to get out before we uh, we end for the day? No, this has been great. Thanks for having me, Matt. Should we cue the phase out music? Uh, sure. Cue the phase out music. Be well, everyone. <laughs>